If you are joining us here uh, this week uh, for the first time, you are joining us really for some of the most difficult verses in 1 John. Both last week, that short paragraph, and this one is, uh, is wrought with all kinds of translation and grammar uh, issues. You see that throughout all the different translations from King James to NASB and everything in between where they're trying to land on how to exactly take the grammar there. And so uh, if you're with me here this morning, you're not reading out of an NASB, then you might just have to take a double take here as we work our way through uh, the text. So with that warning, let's begin. On Tuesday of last week, I arose and I got prepared for work, I'm sure as many of you guys do, and I uh, put on my trousers and my shirt and and I don't know if you're anything like me, but I stopped in front of the mirror just to check that I had lost all the weight I was hoping to and realized that I hadn't. But in my looking, I looked in the mirror and I noticed that I had a pair of khaki pants on and a red polo uh, shirt. And I noticed uh, at that time, I thought, man, I look just like a walking State Farm commercial and I mentioned something to my wife who was getting ready right there next to the mirror in the, in the bathroom, and she quickly agreed, and all I could think about was Valerie asking me, what are you wearing, Carl, from State Farm? And of course, my answer would be, uh, khakis? Well, my unintended State Farm insurance costume caused me to think quite a bit about our text this week, and really since we've been in chapter 5, this, and really the letter of 1 John is, is written very specifically to give the Christian assurance of their salvation. And I pondered how it is that as humans we desire deeply to have assurance that our future time in this world is secure, don't we? We spend a lot of time and insurance money trying to protect it and and we study and we look into things like markets and other things. We purchase insurance. We're hoping to be able to survive in our health. But if or when disaster happens, we might need it. The problem is, of course, that this, these types of accidents and this type of stuff that is somewhat of a surprise to us happens often to us. And if you have insurance, someday you'll have it. You'll know that your insurance premiums tend to go up when you have problems, or at worst, they drop you. With the media moving at the speed of the internet, all we have to do, right, is turn on the nightly news to tragically hear of rising inflation, retirement, loss due to people in the stock markets who are wicked and stealing money, and, and we see stock market crashes that uh, take us from retiring when we want to to, you know, greeting people at Walmart for a long time when we're all done. And to that, right, we see the unexpected loss of life due to viral pandemics, political riots, wars, and mentally ill individuals taking others' lives with everything that we've seen just in the last few months from vehicles to all kinds of various weapons. And as we watch the world turn, we realize that all these things are happening to people just like us who simply headed out for another day of work. My study for this message, I listened to and read pastor and author Stephen Davies' comments on our text. In them, he imagined what it would be like if heaven operated like 
an insurance company who dropped our eternal life insurance policy due to too many violations. Quoting another pastor, uh, Pastor David Conjecture, receiving a letter, uh, what was uh, then called, uh, the letter was then from a company called Pearly Gates Insurance. Bear with me, it reads like this. Dear Mr. Smith, I'm writing in response to this morning's request for forgiveness. I'm sorry to inform you that you have exceeded your quota of transgressions for the year. Our records show that since employing our services, you have erred seven times in the area of greed, and your prayer life is substandard when compared to others of like age in circumstance. Further review reveals that your understanding of doctrine is in the lower 20th percentile, and you have excessive tendencies to gossip. Because of your sins, you are now considered a high-risk candidate for heavenly assurance. You understand that grace has its limits. The Lord, he sends his regrets and his kindest regards and hopes that you will find some other form of coverage as soon as possible. Sincerely, Pearly Gates Insurance. P.S., you only thought that you were in good hands. Well, that's not the kind of letter that you want to receive, is it? And certainly a letter that would ruin your day. As we return to 1 John 5, 18 through 20, we have arrived at John's concluding thoughts this morning. And today we focus once more on the eternal assurance of real Christians in a world in the grasp or in the hands of Satan. 1 John was written to the early church, distinguishing real Christians from fake ones. And last week, we learned from a parable found in Matthew 13 that Jesus said that there would be tares, those who were fake Christians that were among the real Christians, the wheat. The Apostle John has been affirming Jesus' parable all throughout 1 John by comparing, has he not, the children of God to the children of the devil who were still among the church. And while John has been affirming who is who in this letter, he has also been leaving no room for doubt in the real Christian's mind that they are in fact in good hands and they will not be receiving a letter from Pearly Gates Insurance telling them they have sinned too many times. In verses 18 through 20, John contrasts Jesus as God who is able to keep us as children in good hands against Satan who has the world in his grasp. Beloved, we'll see today that Jesus protects for eternity those who belong to him. And what a message. If you've lived as a Christian for any length of time, you have certainly struggled your way through sins, frustrations, things you recognize, things you uh, have not recognized that others have pointed out to you. And certainly uh, a lifetime of that can become depressing. And 1 John stands in the face of that, and especially in these verses, and, and lifts us up and reminds us, you're not going to get dropped. Amen? Jesus Christ paid the price, and you receive the gift. Let's take a look at 1 John 5, 18 through 20. John sums up this letter with three statements of unquestionable assurance for the born-again Christian. Each one starts with the proclamation, we know. <laughs> take a look there. In verse 18, it starts with, we know. In verse 19, it starts with, 
we know. And 20, we know. In short, we could sum up this text for genuine Christians and say that we know that we know that we know that we are, in fact, in good hands. There is no stronger way for John to make sure that at the end of this letter that you are getting it. (laughs) You can know it. If you are born again, you can know because of Jesus Christ that you will be saved. He is able to keep us. Amen? The first we know statement is found in verse 18, and it tells us three truths. First, that a born-again Christian will commit, uh, will not commit the sin that leads to eternal death. The second truth tells us why Christians will not commit that sin. And the third truth is the result of the first two, that the devil does not grasp or hold on to us because of that. So let's dive into the first truth. The genuine born-again Christian will not commit the sin that leads to eternal death. Now, I give you a little bit of warning Uh, There is not a lot of difference unless you're reading in the ESV in this first clause, but hold on here and bear with me. It says this, we know that no one who is born of God sins. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Many take sins here uh, in verse 18 as general, and they end up in somewhat of a problem. And what is that problem? Well, we'll remember back to chapter 1, verse 8. And it says this, if a professing Christian says they have no sin, they are deceived and the truth is not in them. We see the problem, right? Our text says that a born-again Christian is not going to sin. Effectively, uh, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, many of us have uh, verse 9 and are very grateful for it memorized, right? That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us, right? So we have an issue that comes up here in our text. uh, A real Christian is not going to sin, yet... Anyone who says they don't sin isn't a Christian. Because of this problem, many theologians point to the present tense of the singular verb sin here. This is why, if you are reading an ESV, you are reading this, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. They make much of the present tense verb sin there. With that in mind, many scholars conjecture that this sin that is being spoken here is a continued practice of sin. They say that one who is born or begotten of God will not continue a pattern of sin. And I would say, yes and amen. But I wouldn't turn here for that particular text. I had a seminary professor that would often say, right, right idea, wrong place in the text. And I think this is one of those instances. This view finds its strength, though, uh, in that text. 1 John 3, verses 6 through 8, I have it for you up here on the screen. No one who abides in him Sins. This sounds familiar, right? No one who is born of God sins. That's verse 18. So, however, if we continue on in verse 7 and 8 there in chapter 3, um, we come up with this idea of pattern of sin. Verse 7 says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. So these theologians rightly go to the context of the letter and they deal with the problem. Again, what is that problem? Chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says, any Christian who calls themselves a Christian and says, I don't sin, isn't a Christian. Chapter 5, verse 18, what is, the, what is the, the problem with that? Here it says, right, that no one who is born of God sins. So there is the problem. 
So they, many theologians will go to the text, they will point out the, the ongoing nature, the practice, the present tense of the word sin there, and then try and make much of this idea tying it back to 1 John 3. However, that conclusion creates other problems, not the least of which is that uh, it has caused countless Christians to believe that they can lose their salvation if they have the wrong pattern of sin. They have the wrong pattern of sin. What if someone has a pattern of sin that they're not even aware of? Have you ever had one of those? I'm sure none of us in here have ever had a pattern of sin in your life that you're unaware of. If you're married and your spouse is with you, you just turn right over to her right now and ask her, I don't have one of those, do I? (laughs) I don't have a pattern of sin that I'm unaware of, right? And if you're a parent or if you're a child in here and, and, and you're unaware, maybe you just lean on over and whisper in your parent's ear and ask him, I don't have a pattern of sin, do I? Your parent will tell you, sure you do. <laughs> you have a lot of them. And so in the midst, we find this text in the midst of John trying to give us assurance of salvation, if we take it this way, that we lean back to chapter 3, which is amen and amen, don't get in a pattern of sin, you should question your salvation if you are in a pattern of sin, I agree. But I believe here that that's not what's going on. John is trying to assure the church at this point in time that they for sure are held in the hands of a good God, that they are not going to lose their salvation. And so what do we have We've got to look to the context here in chapter 5 where John is clearly intending to give Christians assurance that they are, in fact, in the good hands with God. You'll remember that starting in chapter 5, John uses words like overcomer and victory. Do you guys remember what that word was in the Greek? Nike, right, where we get our word Nike. This idea that if you're a believer, you are an overcomer in Christ, right? You are a victor in Christ. He has been telling the church that for sure you are in good hands. You'll remember that, that, that he uses uh, that word overcomer in victory. And because of that truth, that uh, then a Christian can know that their prayer according to God's will will be answered. And that when a professed Christian sins, others can pray and expect that that person will still have eternal life. Why? Because they are in fact in good hands. However, in contrast to a general pattern of sin, We can know that if someone leaves apostolic Christianity, which is the sin leading to death from our very near context in verse 16, that the sad reality shows that those who do were in fact never Christians. And furthermore, like John in the early church, we can know that they go out from us because they were never of us. Last week, we dug into that difficult text of the difference between sins leading to death and sins uh, not leading to death. And we went through and we discussed, are those physical things that we do? Is this just temporal death and God is going to bring the end of our lives because we continue in some kind of pattern of sin? And certainly there are many people who go that direction and that may be right, but the difficulty with that particular view is that we're told to not pray that people would experience those sins that, uh, or, or experience the result of the sin that leads to death. We have no way to know what to pray for and what not to pray for. But yet in the context of 1 John, what we know is they went out from us because they were not of us. 
We know that the sin that was leading to eternal death in, in the Gospels is the rejection of Jesus Christ for who he was. And so we landed last week that, that, that John is not talking about physical death and physical life there, but yet eternal death and eternal life. And, and as we bring that along with us, we can take a look here and see that John is still in that context talking about that sin. He is saying, we know, this is self-evident knowledge that no one who is born of God sins. And what is this sin that he is speaking of? The sin unto eternal death. So John is not referring to a pattern of sins, but rather saying this, we know that real Christian, a real Christian will never reject apostolic Christianity, therefore committing the sin that leads to eternal death. And beloved, for the rest of three, these three verses, John moves to tell us why. He moves to tell us why. So it would be odd to go into temporal. We hold on to the, law, the length or the eternal nature of this. And he says this, He who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, I've spent a large amount of time, and I apologize for doing it in the first clause of verse 18. And we could spend really the rest of our time uh, together this morning talking about the translation issues that come up in the second clause. But suffice it to say that the NASB has done, I believe, the best job translating this clause, and you might want to write it in your margin. It says, but he who was born of God keeps him. But he who was born of God keeps him. If you're reading the King James Version, they they changed was born of God to is And like the New King James, they also made him reflexive, reading himself, himself, excuse me. Given the reader the idea that the believer keeps himself eternally saved, a notion nowhere taught in Scripture. The clause is simply, but he who was born of God keeps him. Keeps him from what? Committing the sin that leads to eternal death. Can you keep yourself from that sin? Well, if you're Arminian in your, in your uh, idea of salvation, then I guess you would. And I am not. I think there was a day I probably thought I was when I was first saved, but certainly as I look and peer into the text, it's very clearly a work of God, and because God does the work, God keeps his work. Amen? So what can we understand from this verse that... Uh, is that a born-again Christian will not leave apostolic Christianity because they are in good hands. Because Jesus, the one who was past tense, born of God, present tense, keeps us. This affirms what Jesus uh, said of his role in the eternal security of Christians in John chapter 6, verse 37. He said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me Pay attention here, I will certainly not cast out. And in John 6.39, just two verses later, this is the will of him who sent me, that is God, that of all that he has given me, I lose what? Nothing. Nothing. But raise it up on the last day. The beloved John is reaffirming hearing, here, reaffirming here, that which he recorded Jesus saying in his gospel, if you are a real believer, God has drawn you in and given you to Jesus who is clearly able to keep you. 
most of those translators and those other translations, they're, what they're trying to deal with is the present tense of the word sin. And they're trying to figure out how does this match. And so they're allowing that present tense to drive what the second clause says in order to try to make it make sense. And we get that. Listen, I'm telling you, if you spend any time and you dig into the Greek and you begin to work on it, you'll realize it's not as easy as we like to sit here and make it. (laughs) There are a lot of decisions to be made to make one language make sense into another. Jesus is able to keep us, amen? What the text is telling us. Beloved, we have the best insurance for eternal salvation one could purchase. And it was purchased with the blood of Jesus. Amen. In contrast to Jesus keeping those who are his, the Holy Spirit inspires John unto yet again one more contrast. Again it reads, But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. The word behind our English word touch is hopto, and it carries a wide variety of nuances in the New New Testament and the Septuagint. But here the English word Uh, that we have is touch, and it's probably a little bit too soft, it's a little bit too nice, but I don't know if there's a better one to do with just keeping it word for word or just one word and one word. But the word can also be translated to cause illumination, to make close contact, to touch intimately, to make contact, to cause harm. It can mean to cling to, it can mean to fasten to, it can mean to lay hold of. And it is this ladder to cling to, to fasten to, or to lay hold of that is intended here in the text. The idea is that Jesus is able to keep us, right, in that the evil one is not able to cling to, hold on, to grasp, to pull us away. We have assurance we're in good hands. The beloved, the first we know statement in verse 18 reminds us that Christians will not commit the sin leading to death. And lead and leave apostolic Christianity. And why? Jesus keeps us. And therefore, the devil cannot grasp, cannot lay hold of us. Oh, but I hope that that just settles in your heart. And I know that's a lot. And I'm sorry for the technicality of it, but there's no way to get around it in today's verses. There are many different things going on. But it's important that we keep this context in mind. And the idea in the end is that God saved us. Jesus keeps us, and he's not going to lose us. That should just cause us all to say amen and want to go home. (laughs) Well, we have just a little more, and we can. The second we know statement is, like the first, and contrasts the reality that, one, presently a real Christian is born of God, and two, presently the whole world lies in the hands of of or is grasped by the devil. Verse 19, we know this is self-evident knowledge again. This is what the apostles taught, that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Maybe you're hearing this for the first time and you're thinking to yourself, well, I thought the world lay in the power in the hands of God and not in the power in the hands of the evil one. Well, you're correct in one sense. God is, in fact, sovereign, but Since the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, God has relinquished or allowed Satan to handle his children, so to say, all of those who followed after him, that is Adam's children. 
And so there it is, is that the devil is controlling all who continue to reject God. That is what's meant by the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Luke, the author of Acts, wrote this towards the end of the book in Acts 26, verses 16 through 18. He recorded a conversation that the Lord Jesus was having with Paul during Paul's commissioning when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus is speaking to him here, and I want us to pay attention to what is being said about the power of the evil one and over the world and that of God. He says this in verse 16, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you. Verse 17, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Do you see it there? Jesus himself is saying what? Darkness equates to Satan's kingdom, right? And light equates to God's kingdom, and he is saying to Paul, I am commissioning you, I am sending you to the Jews, I am sending you to the Gentiles to preach this gospel which has the ability to pull people out of Satan's kingdom and into the kingdom of light. So friends, we see here that John is doing nothing more than what uh, Jesus was affirming when, when he was teaching Paul, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Therefore, we could say that although presently the world lies in the hands of or is in Satan's grasp, real Christians are grasped by or in the good hands of God. In the good hands of God. Many commentators turn to this verse here that, that the world lies in the, in the hands of the evil one and they, and they bring out some imagery of almost like Satan as a father to children who has just got all his children in his arms and they're just lying there asleep, being rocked to sleep. And the gospel comes, right? And it says, there's such a thing as sin. <laughs> you got to stop. You got to turn. You got to put your faith in Christ who was alone able to save you. And he will pull you out of the kingdom of darkness and put you into the kingdom of light. And not only will he do that, he will keep you forever. Amen? This brings us to this third immovable assurance of a genuine Christian's eternal home. John takes one final magnificent swing at the false teachers who did not believe in the two natures of Jesus Christ. They did not believe in his deity, and they did not believe that he was a human at the same time. It was one or the other, and it's no different today. It reminds me of last week when I forgot what I was talking about. Where's that young man? Where is he? Gerald? What I was thinking about, Gerald, bear with me for a second, was how he's coming from the East Coast. <laughs> And uh, on the East Coast, in my time in the East Coast, there wasn't a lot of false teachers. There wasn't a lot of Mormons. There's some, some presence. But as you push out here further to the West, it becomes very clear. And what do we know about these Mormons? What do we know about these Jehovah's Witnesses, right? That they do not believe in the two natures of Christ. They do not believe that he was deity. They would agree that he was humanity. And these early uh, heretics were believing more that Christ was deity, but he didn't come in the flesh, 
And that is the heresy. Believe in the wrong Jesus? Don't get eternity. And that's what John is talking of here. Are you so happy that I finally figured out what I was talking about? You want to know how I knew? I just, I just have such a great mind, Gerald. No, actually, my wife told me. This is what you were thinking, like she usually does. And she's usually right. Usually. Now, where was I? It brings us this third immovable assurance of a genuine Christian's eternal home. Right? John is going to take one final swing, right? One final punch at the end of this letter at these these heretics who are not agreeing with what the apostles said of Jesus. Here we see that a real Christian will understand right doctrine and therefore they are in good hands. First, we'll see that the Son of God has come. Second, that we can know him. And third, that we are in Christ who is the true and eternal God and eternal life. First, what's it say there in verse 20? And we know. We know. This is self-evident knowledge. The apostle has been teaching that the Son of God has come. Right? He has come. This has been the heresy. He did not come in the, fa- in the flesh, and he is pushing back on this. Yes, he did. And he has given us understanding. He came, he was real, and he gave us understanding. And we are telling you what that understanding is. Beloved, the letter ends how it began. The apostles saying, don't listen to the false teachers, listen to us. Remember in 1 John 1, 1 through, uh, 1, 1 through 3, it says this, what was from the beginning What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. It did become real, right, beloved? And we have seen and we testify and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father back in eternity and was manifested to us back when we saw him. What we have seen and what we have heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. What are they saying? He's swinging at them, right? (laughs) Like, the end of the battle, man. I'm just going to start swinging with both arms. Like, I'm telling you. He has come. He has given us understanding. The Son of God has come, amen? Friends, we have been given understanding directly from those who walked and were discipled by Jesus, the eternal life. Are you committing to are you committed to? Are you committing to learning God's word? Sometimes we just get lulled to sleep, right? Are you committed? Are you passionate? Are you following? Are you wanting to learn? We have done all that we can in, in, a, in an effort to, to help you along the way. We have added a class that has been just wonderful for so many people. It starts at 6:30 in the morning, goes to 7:30 in the morning, goes through the entire Bible, reads every verse called 119. We have men's and women's Bible studies. We have small groups. We have discipleship classes at 9 a.m. most of the year, all in an effort, not just so we can fill up time, right, but that we can do just exactly what John is saying right here. Do not forget it. We have seen him. We have heard him. We know him. This is what he has taught. Don't lose track. Don't get rocked to sleep by, the, by Satan. He has taught us. Secondly, we've been given understanding so that we may know. You might underline that in your text. And we've been talking about in verse 18 and verse 19 and verse 20, they started with we know. And that word there is oida. 
And it is this idea that it is it has been taught, it is knowledge gained, it is right here in front of you, it has been written down, it is the knowledge that we have. And this is so cool right here, beloved. Pay attention to the shift. And I've been telling you about this throughout this letter. John uses two different words that get translated into no. One is oida and the other is gnosko. And this word gnosko is used here in our text now. He shifts off of, you can know it for sure because I have said it. And he says what? That you can know and gain knowledge by experience is the idea of gnosko. So that we may know, knowledge gained by experience, who Uh, him who is true. And here is the relationship. We talk about this all the time, right? But here it is, this switch from just hard knowledge of gaining knowledge in the text. And it says here, but but then you can grow in your knowledge and your relationship with Jesus Christ. What a shift in the text. So fun to see that. Mark that in your Bible. This is the, the knowledge gained by experience. You can experience the King of Heaven. You can walk with him. You can be obedient to him. You can experience his presence, the peace and knowledge that comes from walking with him, his son, Jesus Christ. This is, he says, the true God and eternal life. Friends, in John's gospel, he opened it with these familiar words, John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was was God. Just a few verses later in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Not only did those apostles get to see Christ and to know him and gain knowledge by experience, we have this great privilege by the Spirit of God living in our life that we would interact with the word of God, that we would look to it, and we would walk with God We could know him. We could gain experience and knowledge and understanding and wisdom and love and peace and joy and horrible circumstances, all because we are walking with the creator of the universe and we know that we we are held in his hands and that the devil himself cannot grasp onto us. He cannot pull us away. He certainly will try. Just turn on the news. Just live life. Just experience a little persecution from your faith at work. God will give us peace. Beloved, in these verses, the Holy Spirit has contrasted Jesus as God who is able to keep us as his children against Satan who has grasped and is rocking the world to sleep as they are headed to eternal punishment. You are a real born-again Christian. You are in good hands. Amen? You have the best insurance one could attain. Purchased with the blood of Christ. Beloved, rest well. God is able to keep what he gives birth to you. We've seen today that Jesus protects for eternity those who belong to him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the great assurance that we have. And certainly, I think of the writer of Hebrews who mentions to us, as we read all these years later, that we do not have a high priest who cannot identify with the struggles and the sin, not necessarily the sins in action, but the, the potential for it, the, the temptations of sin, Lord. But we have a high priest who has experienced all those things, Lord, that was tempted, but yet went unscathed. And in that, Lord, we, we take much solace 
and that we can not only know about you and learn about you and memorize text, Lord, but we can walk with you. Pray, Lord, for anyone in here today that is any mixture of those things, somebody who's just gained knowledge but has never walked with you, or somebody who says they've walked with you but they don't even know what it means and they don't understand the scripture and and would be easily led astray by the devil. For those who are just in here that don't know you at all, Lord, I pray that you would lead them to you, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they could know you and your son, Jesus Christ. We'll give you all the glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.